I challenge you to find another person who's done as many jobs in the great photography ecosystem than Deborah Bell. It's for this reason that I thought she would be a great choice for the first half of what I hope will be many interviews with members of the photography community. Deborah has not only a wealth of knowledge in the history of photography, but she's also a wonderful human being, full of generosity, warmth, and unstoppable energy. I was so happy when she agreed to sit down to talk about how she got to where she is today. So without further ado, let's dive right into the first half of my interview with the great Deborah Bell. This is The Expert Eye. Well, I moved to New York City on September 11th, 1978 with seven pieces of luggage, um, my camera case, tripod, I am sewing machine, and I guess like three bags or something, you know, regular luggage. And um, I began as a freelance um, photographer's assistant, so I worked, well, I, I started looking for jobs by calling some of my favorite photographers. And um, one I had already met before because I'd made a, a trip to New York the year before as a kind of a test trip. And I'd gone to see Gosta Peterson, the fashion photographer whose work I sometimes show and whose work, whose, I'll, I'll do an, um, an exhibition of his work soon, like as soon as we can really welcome people back and people can be comfortable having an opening in a small space like this. But anyway, so I'd met him and I worked for him in his studio um, in um, setting up the lights and, and loading cameras and and working in the dark room. I processed film and printed for him. But so I, I did, I met him first when I took my little test trip because I, I called him up and said I'm going to be moving to New York and could I meet you and you know could I possibly do you ever hire assistants so then when I got and he actually used me as this is going to sound funny because I'm not model material but he used me as a model for one spread of photographs in L'Officiel magazine the I think it was the American L'Officiel at the time and but he liked to use regular people not necessarily always agency models so um, I had a little um, um, I had a fun experience with that and my mother who was very sick with cancer at the time was very happy when I sent home <laughs> um, that issue of that magazine because it also I think made my mother and father feel like I was okay you know there was <laughs> um, because it was a scary thing for them that I moved to New York when I was 24 from so, Minnesota. Minnesota. Yeah. So, but anyway, so when I moved here, I stayed with some friends, um, two different friends, three weeks each, while I looked for um, an apartment. And I proceeded to call various photographers and ask them if they were hiring um, assistants and could I come and meet them and so forth. And so I got little dribs. <coughs> drabs of work that way you know a few days at a time here a few days at a time there and um there were people who they uh, there were uh, some photographers who had like a tryouts where you you might just spend a day there and they'd see what the chemistry was like and some things didn't work out and other places that I went to visit I thought 
okay, I don't think this is the right fit anyway. I don't really belong here. Because I, I had an idealistic view of uh, what I would be doing, as not doing as an assistant. But uh, well, anyway, I should put this differently. The point is that all the people whose work I loved in the editorial world weren't working anymore I, I, or very working very little so I was about 15 years too late uh, and who is that well even Gus Peterson Gusta Peterson and James Moore who was a fashion photographer I loved his work in Harper's Bazaar in the 1960s and he had got on to make television commercials and he was still doing some print work but um, he wasn't it, as he didn't have the bustling studio that he had once had and the same thing for William Solano who was also working for Bazaar in the 60s and early 70s but I did have the good fortune of I think I called Irving Penn my third day I was in town and um, they said well you know come on right come come right down and so I went down to 89 Fifth Avenue I was living in the East, I can't remember where I was living at the time, but anyway, so I came, I went down to the studio, 89 Fifth Avenue on the 11th floor, and um, Pat McCabe, the studio manager who had been with Mr. Penn for, I think, even decades by that time, and then she, you had a sale, no, no, I think, I guess Christie's had a sale, the Pat... (coughs) excuse me, Patricia McCabe collection yeah. that was before or after I left Christie's. But um, anyway, so she was very kind and I met with Mr. Penn and he interviewed me and um, I brought pictures that I had taken and he asked me what kind of enlarger and lens I had used to make some of my prints. And I remembered the enlarger, but I didn't remember the lens because I had made some of them in art school and um, that was at a time when it was a, a period when I think all the exactitude and um, it, it wasn't fashionable when I was going to art school to be concerned with all that. I mean, I did learn it. I learned it later also in working for people. But it was more of the Gary Winogrand street photography celebration discovery period Diane Arbus um, and so you just kind of worked with what you had and so and in the, in the dark rooms at the Minneapolis College of Art and Design you couldn't always have the same enlarger you couldn't always you know get the same equipment and you couldn't always ask for the Schneider lens you might <laughs> right. use a, a different kind and so um Anyway, so I, I couldn't remember which lens I had enlarged the, the, the pictures with. And this was, uh, you know, uh, it, I think it meant that, because he said, well, I was thinking maybe you could, you could print for us, you know. And, but I wasn't technically um, astute enough. I, I helped in other ways. I, I spotted. I retouched the platinum prints, which he was still preparing you know this was 1978 the fall of 1978 so he was still getting his archive organized it was it's a huge archive as you know and sometimes I would fill in for Pat if she had to take a day off for some reason so 
I'd be sitting right across the desk from Mr. Penn answering the phone, you know, and so, and I saw him do um, sessions with models and, and, uh, and, and we all, we stayed in touch. I, I would stay in touch with the studio and I'd come and visit and then I'd, ask him if he would sign books and <laughs> things like that you know and and he would send um, catalogs too so I got to be I guess on a very I, I was grateful to be included when he <coughs> had a new publication mm -hmm. or in the early days Why anyway did you leave the studio it was only freelance okay. it was just a so day here or a day there a yeah no it was um and the truth is um as a spotter, it, I, the pay was $30 a day, and I, I just, even then, in 1978, that wasn't a lot of money, so I had to, I had to make more money. Right. So I couldn't, I couldn't do, I couldn't make that my main, um, you know, freelance or long-term freelance um, job. <clears throat> but it was wonderful to get to know him a little bit and Pat was a wonderful person and so then I mean okay and then I would uh, they would call me sometimes or I'd call them you know you know over the years and they they said at one point well we were thinking maybe you could help us with work you know Mr. Penn is working on a big you know book of his life's work and maybe you could help in some way with that but and then I'd call to follow up and say well do you you know I'm just checking in to see if you might need any help on that right. yet or oh no, we no, haven't no. really started it you know he it, it was it the book became passage but it took okay. about 10 years for passage to um uh, rev up develop right. take shape um so anyway it was a wonderful um, beginning for me, even if it wasn't a full time job, it was a it was a wonderful relationship that started with um, Mr. Penn and Pat. Um, well, you are incredibly lucky to have such an early and influential experience. Yeah, you know, with someone who was such a good teacher and mm -hmm. was so exacting and yeah, um, that that's an incredible early. <laughs> Yes, chance for you. It was. I mean, um, I wasn't the right person to print for him, mm -hmm. but um, I understood that. So then, uh, so for about a year, I think I, you know, kind of, I, I did. I freelanced doing, you know, in and out of photographer studios, days here, days there, and then I needed a full time job. So I got. I, I went, answered an ad in the newspaper. That was when also you looked in the newspaper to, you know, see what the job listings right. were. And I found um, a notice for a, a studio called Helga Studio that uh, I'd never heard of them. But I called up and it was a full-time job. But I was the only employee. I was in the darkroom all day long printing um printing from original negatives and copy negatives and the the my boss Arthur Vitols V I T O L S and he that name isn't no well known nor is Helga a studio 
known. He he bought an, an old studio. I don't I don't even know what kind of clients Helga had, or if Helga even existed. But um, I don't know about the history of the studio. I mean, I should have asked. But he he was quite busy, and he worked for um, for galleries, like and mostly for like furniture galleries and so I'll reel off some names he photographed silver for SJ Shrubsoul for their catalogs mm -hmm. and let's see um, furniture for Stair and company but he also had a very interesting account with the Museum of the City of New York um, printing uh, we printed all of the pictures they got reproduction requests for Lewis Hine or um, um, you know all of the early New York photographers um, Jacob Reese Berenice Abbott and so um, Mr. Vito's yeah go ahead so you were taking pictures of the pictures for reproduction um, no um, so at the Museum of the City of New York um, Mr. Vito's would go there in the morning pick up like a pile of negatives that you know the the person in charge of the reproduction requests would say okay well you know we got she just leave a pile for him of all the pictures that were requested I by see. you know I see. um let, let's i'm just making this up but you know dale kaplan doing a book on jacob you know on lewis hine right. or we didn't i don't think we had any lewis hine but something like that so i got to print those and um a lot of times they were copy negatives but some of the bernice abbott photographs were original bernice abbott negatives oh, okay interesting yeah so that must have really helped you with your sort of mental encyclopedia of images i guess just so yeah because mm -hmm. you were looking at so much at that time right and then just sort of socking it away somewhere yes. in your brain it was it was also hard to print some of those copy negatives because they were sometimes really dense and we also had a, 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 a they were eight by ten or four by five copy negatives and we had a um a um a uh, not a copy stand what did you call it um it was a Instead of putting them in the enlarger, there was a. Um, um, it was like an easel underneath. No, it was a light, a light, light, a light box kind of thing. Oh, okay. Now, okay. better light boxes had little bulbs you dodged and burned with little bulbs that you could turn off and on to, like, if you were dodging, you would turn off some bulbs. If you were burning in, you would turn on some bulbs. Well, we didn't have that kind. I had to <laughs> scrunch up paper towels and Kleenex and stuff to put them in the base of the over the lights to block you know to dodge to, to, to dodge right and so <laughs> it was pretty tedious it was fun though it works it's just yeah, tedious it's just <laughs> tedious I'm sorry I'm going too far into this but then um so I was the only employee and while other friends of mine were working for big photographers who were going off on trips to the Virgin Islands or Antarctica or, you know, Kansas or wherever it was. I was I was all day long yeah, all by myself like in the dark room. The only pers people I saw were the when I'd order chemicals and the del chemical delivery guy would come. That sounds like a slog. <laughs> it sounds really hard. Yeah, it was um it was it took me a while to figure out that you know maybe I didn't want a, 
I, I could be learning more from other people. Yeah. But anyway, then I decided I wanted to go back to um, school, and I um, wanted to I wanted to get a master's in art history. So I applied to Hunter College, which allowed you to get a, a degree at night, an MA at night. It was the only school that I knew of where you could do a master's program at night. And so in order to do that, I needed to uh, get a job that paid more. So I promise I won't dwell on this next part because it's not photographic or artistic. <laughs> but I, I, again, answered an ad in the New York Times for college grad, no typing, $17,000. This was 1979 or 80, and 80, I think. And um, it was for an, an executive, a deployment agency. And um, I got, I was hired and I got paid a draw against commission. And so, but I start, you know, it, you could make more money. So that was a good thing. I thought I'll stay here for about a year and I stayed five years. And by that time I was working on my thesis on Degas photographs. So I'm jumping ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so you must have been making some good money and then mm -hmm. it was stable enough that you could really focus on your studies. That's right. And yeah. it was a happy place to be yes. for that reason. And I had some great teachers. Um, there was no history of photography program and there hadn't been one at um, MCAD either, Minneapolis College of Art and Design, but photographers were teaching us. So Tom Arndt and Stuart Clipper were my teachers at MCAD, and of course they knew Gary Winogrand. He came out and talked to us. And But at, um, at Hunter College, um, I took three classes with Rosalind Krauss. Um, I had other good, good classes with other great teachers in other disciplines like um there was a woman named mary mark no i can't remember her name now but she taught greek art and you know so it was a wonderful education and uh roy de caravo was teaching there but in photography in wow. practice you know the practical in in practicing photography right. not in art history so. so some good people to be around. Yeah. So you graduated. Good. Yeah. And then. Well, a little bit before that, I answered an, um, a, a notice on the, the bulletin board at Hunter for an internship in a gallery. Um, and it turned out to be Sander Gallery. And I was reading the bulletin board at school. They wanted intern, you know, they were looking for an intern. And I saw they listed that they handled the work of August Sander, Lizette Modell, and Albert Renker Potch, and I thought I've got to work there. Right? I just, yeah. I just, I, I love their three, <laughs> three great photographers. Exactly. So I uh, called for an interview. Um, I thought that you know they'd be too busy to see me, or you know, I thought when I I got an appointment and I got. I thought when I got there, there'd be a line around the block of people waiting to be interviewed. Right, like, who doesn't want this job? Right. But I was the only one. Uh, well, no, I got the only one that day. I was, that day, yeah. And um, they said, I said, I'm sorry, I can only work on Saturdays because I've got this full-time job. And they said, okay. So I had that internship um, organizing the library. It was a uh, Sander Gallery it was then at 51 Green Street in Soho between Grand and Broom. And so um, after about six or eight months of the internship, I didn't need the credits. I just wanted to do it. Um, uh, and my internship was over. <clears throat> I said, well, if there's ever 
a, a job opening, um, I, I'd be so grateful to be considered. And I think about three months later, or I don't know, three, six months later, they called and said, well, you know, would you like like to come and work here? So that was thrilling for me. And that's really where my art gallery dealing, you know, where my experience began with our world, the world that we're all in right, right now, the ecosystem right. that we're in now. Right, an yeah. early experience yeah. in working with some incredible prints, right. I imagine. Yeah, and before that, it was, I was in the world of practical photography, the right. doing of it, except for working for Mr. Penn. But so. I imagine that they really appreciated that you knew technical aspects about the prints and had that background? Or I guess so. I mean, I spotted a lot there I did because Gerd would come in with pictures that maybe he and Rudolf Kicken had bought together. Um, so Gerd Sonder, just yes. to give everyone um, yes. background on Gerd. Yes, Gerd Sander was the grandson of August Sander. And, and should I say the great German photographer um, <laughs> who lived from 1876 to 1964. And Gerd, the grandson, uh, died just this past May, May 26th, May 25th or 26th. Yes. So, so he was printing from um, August Saunders' negatives. Yes, but he didn't start that until um, about 1990 after his father, Gunther, died. Gunther died in 87. So um, what I would see in the way of Sander prints at uh, Sander Gallery were either the vintage prints that August himself had made or um, the prints that Gerd's father, Gunther, had made in Germany. And Gunther never came to the United States. He so anybody like uh, the dealer Tom Halstead, when he had his gallery in Michigan, would go to Germany and visit Gunther and get prints from him. This was before Gerd moved to the United States. Once he moved here and became and decided to open a gallery in Washington, D.C., then he became the official dealer of, of August Sanders' photographs. But it wasn't until um, until Gunther died that Gerd began to print, do those editions right. that started right. in the 90s. Yeah. Right. So, but Gerd would go home to Cologne, go to Germany, and, and you know visit his father, and come back with prints that Gunther had made. But it was when people requested, you know, mainly when people would request a print, okay. and then specific. Filling orders, kind of. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And maybe uh, some extras. So, um, so how long did you work for Sonder? Only one year. Oh, okay. Then I got an offer to go to Marlboro Gallery. And the, the director of photography at Marlboro at that time was the photographer Bruce Cratsley. And um, Bruce offered me the job, and I thought, oh, gee, this is just such a wonderful opportunity. I, I mean, Marlboro is a huge gallery with a yes. lot of artists, incredible artists that they represent. Yes. Were they representing estates at that time? Um, or was it all yes. living artists? It, no. Well, Bill Brandt had died in 83. I started there in 84. So they had been representing Bill Brandt as an artist, but then they began representing the estate. Right. So... Um, until Edwin took over a few years later, Edwin Hauk. But um, 
so I told Gerd that, um, and I want to get back to Sander because there's more to <coughs> say about that. But Gerd said when I gave him my notice, um, he said, "Oh, now you're going to a real gallery." Oh he said. gosh. <laughs> Because, you know, Sander was a smallish gallery, and um, but it was a, a, you know, extreme, an extremely serious gallery. Of course. And, um, but we used to joke that when we'd have openings on, at 51 Green, there, we hardly had any people come. Whereas down the block at, um, Janet Borden used to work there. You should talk to Janet, too. Um, the, the, um, Anyway, at the gallery down the street where, you know, they have a, a Larry Clark show and there'd be people just, you know, <laughs> out into the streets, you know, uh, and there lots of noise and it was, you know, an exciting living artist. And so, um, but we joke that, well, we mainly have dead artists, so there aren't that many people coming right, to the openings. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, but at Sander, yes, I learned a lot, and um, I don't know that it, I think it probably mattered to Gerd that I had practical experience with pictures, the objects themselves, and the making of them, but he knew so much that, I mean, he knew, he had worked with his father, Gunther, who had a huge lab in Cologne. It was the equivalent of Dugal mm -hmm. here in New York. And they made, you know, wall-sized murals. They did every kind of job. And so what I knew and learned was like, you know, a thimble full compared to the kind of work that he had done with his father uh, for, for many years. Well, sure, but you were just starting out. And mm -hmm. so... <laughs> well, were... no, but it, I guess it did help because I um, also, when um, Ringel and Pitt, when he was publishing the Ringel and Pitt portfolio, Ellen Auerbach and I used to, we had a, a dark room in the basement at Sander Gallery so I would often make prints for reproduction there so I printed there but I also worked with Ellen to make her prints for the portfolio so Ellen and I made a lot of the prints together that are in the Ringle and oh, Pitt portfolio so cool. which is fun I'm so, very proud of that yeah so I, I do feel proud of that I mean I just was I didn't help a lot, but I did help. <laughs> I was there. <laughs> um, but it was fun. I mean, um, those were days, too, when, you know, Rudolph Kicken would come to New York from Cologne, and he'd come with some stack of pictures, and, you know, they'd, they'd, they'd be on the floor, and people would, you know, Gerd and Rudy and they'd be going through them together and you know i'd be looking over and there would be dritical and funke and you know rossler and all these and, and other great german photographers werner mons and of course august sander so yeah it was exciting yeah and gerd would let me spot some things that thought boy if i destroy this picture this is i'm this is this is dangerous. You must have a very steady hand, <laughs> and you're very skilled, and I'm sure he trusted you, but I wouldn't have touched it. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, um, uh, no. well, and after he, after I left, um, he got the Modell, Lizette Modell estate, um, so um, he had he had printed for Lizette Modell, and he then uh, became the dealer, and so I spotted all of those, too, as freelance work so yeah then 
I should stop talking and see how you'd like me to proceed. <laughs> well, I mean, even though I knew that she worked for Sonder, I wasn't aware of all of the different things that you got to do when you worked there. And mm -hmm. I think it really does um, make a difference in terms of the fact that you know a little bit about a lot with photographic prints, mm -hmm. the technology be behind printing at that time, yeah. understanding what um, you know in painting does look like on a print. Mm -hmm. um, just a lot of the technical things that a lot of people don't know anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm just wondering, do you think that it's essential for a photographs specialist to have that background or do you think it matters that's one of the good questions that you wrote and um i was thinking about that and i'm not sure boy that's a tough one and i will i will sound cynical when i say i'm not sure that it matters anymore um i think that we're at the point in the photography market where a lot of great work is being recycled and it's all that's already been determined you know 8 by 10 negative printed on you know maybe i have a, a photograph right now by walker evans in in the gallery that's on the wall and on the back he wrote medalist paper and i thought oh that's fun you know <laughs> I, I thought medalist that was a really good paper i like that right. paper um but I don't know that anybody cares too much about that anymore. I don't know that there are that many photo geeks. Um, I mean, okay, maybe among the people of my generation and a little bit older, um, and, and some young ones too. I have people, sure. younger people coming in, and they, they're just thrilled to see anything gelatin silver. Oh, well, let's talk about that for a second, because if I've, I've been coming up with this theory mm -hmm. that there are two different kinds of collectors that I encounter. Mm -hmm. got, on one hand, the sort of object fetishist people that are yeah. really into photographic prints, um, what paper is it on, is it right. vintage, what's the condition, all of these details. And then there are other people that seem to just be interested in content yeah. and image. Mm -hmm. Do you think does <laughs> does that ship float? Does that does that make sense to you? Yes, Do it you does. I mean yeah. I, I think there's, um, I, I think you just used the word connoisseur. There, um, there is connoisseurship, and and there, but I'm I'm not sure that everybody's interested in connoisseurship, which is fine, you know. Um, there, they might be just happy happy enough to know that they love the image. That maybe someone else like you. Um, said that is a really good print. I have seen other prints of this, and to me, this is one of the better ones. And so, uh, there, I think there's humility in that too. They're willing to accept um, people's advice on their or um, opinions on that, and then um, and accept your advice if you have any. Um, I think. There is a you know there are so many facets to the connoisseurship thing, and I'm going to take this a step further and say that I think some people are still um, not still some 
people, I think, and this is not a criticism, are intimidated by photography because unless you've got an edition where all the prints look the same, it's almost too complicated, you know. Oh, I um, totally agree. We, I mean, I think that's one of the main stumbling blocks for us, even mm -hmm. though people think that photography should be one of the more accessible things to start buying right. if you're a new collector. You hear this over and over again, it's so accessible, yeah. maybe because of the price point. Mm -hmm. But people are very intimidated by yes. photographs and and sorting out how to even get started with buying photographs. Yes. And how many more are there? How do I know if this is the best one? They don't know if, well, if they, if prints were made at different times and they all look different then how do I know that this is the one I should buy so I think that's part of the intimidation well do um, you get a lot of people coming into the gallery that you have to sort of coach through yeah. those yes ideas and sometimes they just they never buy anything um there's one person um that I I, I um, let's see I should put it this way I've because this is not the only person that I've ever had this experience with but sometimes it's so overwhelming then that they just never do anything <laughs> um, for example the person said well I was told I shouldn't buy anything that's mounted mm -hmm. and then um, I said well you may know that um, somebody else whom you've said that you know like and trust who has a big collection only collects vintage prints at all i think probably half of those i, I don't, shouldn't say i didn't say half but a lot of those are mounted and mm -hmm. that person buys mounted prints and oh okay but yeah i just don't know and you know and i gave lots of examples of let's see i had a a picture by greta stern but oh sometimes Ringle and Pitt pictures were a Greta Stern picture, sometimes a Nell and Auerbach picture, sometimes they both took credit. And it was mounted on Masonite. And um, a museum was interested in it, and they had their conservator look at it, and they said, well, well, the dry mount tissue serves as a protective barrier, mm -hmm. so we're not worried about that Masonite. They ended up not buying it for another reason. They had some other bigger purchase that kind of knocked it out of, you know, uh, uh, priority, but um, which happens a lot. But I told this person that story, and it still wasn't enough to like. I don't want to say calm the person down or or make just make them not worry. So I don't know. I think yeah. you have to decide um, how much you want something. How right. I think I think in our field you have to love photography very much. Yeah. Um, I just think about those, um, the Robert Frank prints that you see on the market sometimes that are printed on masonite that came from an exhibition. Yeah. Um, those are often really problematic. They've yes. got a lot of crackalore in the surface, and yeah. they're yellowed and well, isn't, stained. Pardon me, but isn't that because they were um, uh, they were varnished? Right, so varnished and then also um, yellowing because of that. Right. And then there's something that's happening with perhaps environmental, like with the humidity where the well, print's contracting. But so, the masonite isn't. But the masonite isn't. Yeah. Um, so when you're showing this to somebody that's not familiar with photographs, then, you know, what it comes down to is 
well, do you just want the object? That's not, right. You know, because yeah. mm-hmm. you're never going to find it a, a unique thing like this again. Yeah. So you kind of have to just be obsessed with the object. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I don't know. It just seems like you get more people in this field that are really object driven uh, yes. more than in painting fields or, or mm-hmm. sculpture. Right. And you don't have to be a painter to mm-hmm. write about painting or to be a painting dealer. That yeah. You know, so you don't. I don't think you have to be a photographer to be a photographs dealer. No, that's right. Yeah. So going back to your question, um, I don't think it's really necessary to be to have been a photographer or a practitioner um, of photography and in any area in order to be a photography dealer. Right. I think it's probably helpful very helpful I think I I think that um, it depends too then on what you want to handle because um, a lot of people who don't who are in the business but maybe don't know that much then they ask other people and get advice or maybe they're just handling things that are um, that don't have so many question marks things that were made during our lifetimes later 20th century exactly like yeah you know more um you know thomas struther right bratinsky yes. um marilyn minter prints that are always mounted the same way mm-hmm. if cared for then you're probably not going to see that many condition issues yeah it's vintage photography where you start to see them break down that right that you it helps to understand yeah i i think that's it i think that um i had a a client visit my old gallery one day and she had bought a picture from me at APAD and she I mean and this is nice when people say this well I'd like to come to your gallery and see what else you have and that doesn't happen every day (laughs) Um, but she came and I thought okay she bought Furet so she she might really like you know pretty much the same time period 60s 70s so i showed her eggleston i had some eggleston prints (coughs) at the time and gary winogrand and um i could see that um it was not it it just wasn't computing to use a bad word uh um and and i was talking about you know the whole idea of a good picture and i and i just saw the eyes glazed <laughs> over and um i thought okay maybe i'm talking too much or um but i realized in the end what it was was that it everything was different after cindy sherman in that the 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 photographs were no longer about a good composition a standalone picture all right I shouldn't say we're no longer, but <coughs> they weren't as important. And that wasn't, you know, the concept that I think I was talking about how, you know, he made a lot of different exposures, but, you know, then he would select on his contact sheets the pictures that he thought were the best. Well, that just didn't, you know, it wasn't in the realm of her th- thinking or what she'd been exposed to I should say so I realized that it was more like you know series of series of pictures or or a concept that that was the what 
she's young she was younger than mm-hmm. i maybe by 15 or 20 years so it was a newer generation of people looking at photography and they were not so concerned with this one you know great picture right but it was more about these you know uh these more like project ideas in a way While we have to stop here for now, the second half of my interview with Deborah will be ready shortly. In that episode, she discusses the opening of her gallery in Chelsea, her time at Christie's New York, and reestablishing her gallery on the Upper East Side. This episode of The Expert Eye was recorded at Deborah Bell Photographs at 16 East 71st Street in New York. It was edited by Yvonne Suro. You can visit our website at theexperteye.org for links to Deborah's gallery and more information about the photographers that she shows. Stay tuned for the next episode. And in the meantime, Google cautiously, blacklight judiciously, and do not handle prints under the influence of intoxicants.